This is where the deep misconception exists in many countries. They think that Christianity, like all religions, is a matter of self-help, keep the rule book, and God, if you're good enough, will accept you one day. That is not Christianity. Christianity tells us of a God who came and suffered to take upon himself the guilt and the mess that we've made of our own lives and those of others. He doesn't guarantee we won't die physically, but he does guarantee we'll never be separated from him, whether we live or we die. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. To find out how to support our efforts, check out the support page of our website, whitehorseinn.org. If you are new to the White Horse Inn, be sure to click on the first-time visitors link from our homepage, where you can order our free intro kit. By signing up for this kit, we'll send you a complimentary copy of the current issue of our magazine, Modern Reformation, along with extended-length editions of the White Horse Inn on CD, completely free of charge. All you have to do is request our intro kit. Simply look for the first-time visitors link on our homepage at whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal. And joining me for this broadcast is John Lennox, who is Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at Oxford University and Senior Fellow at the Trinity Forum. Dr. Lennox is an international speaker on issues related to Christian theology and apologetics, and he's the author of a number of books that explore the relationship between science and faith, including Can Science Explain Everything?, God and Stephen Hawking?, and God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? On today's program, we'll be talking with him about his brand new book, where is God in a coronavirus world? And so, John Lennox, thanks for being my guest today on the White Horse Inn. It's a pleasure to be with you. So why don't you start off, first of all, by telling our listeners why you decided to write this little book? I decided to write it at the very beginning of the pandemic, because as a mathematician, I know just a little bit about exponential growth. And I had the impression that things would go very rapidly and the people would start asking very big questions when it got scary. So I felt impelled to sit down and spend a week working many hours a day to get something on paper and to see whether it might be suitable to produce a little book. So that's why I did it. What do you think will be the long-term sort of economic consequences of this uh, pandemic? Oh, I'm not a politician or an economist, but it's quite clear it's damaging people. And there are some sectors of society it's damaging greatly. People who depend for their living on working, say, in shops or in factories, and when these close down, or in airlines, or the travel business, it's affecting people very badly. What the long-term consequences are, you need to ask CNN, not me. <laughs> Now, you start off in your book by saying that the coronavirus reminds us of our vulnerability. It's easy to forget that we humans are mortal, and it provides evidence that both our relationship with creation and creation's relationship with us are disordered. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, and we have to step back from this a little bit, we have to diagnose or think seriously about what is wrong with the world 
and its fractured nature. We've got viruses, we've got earthquakes, tsunamis, and all that kind of thing. And I was forcibly reminded of this when I arrived in New Zealand just after the earthquake. And people wanted to know, why, why is the world like this? Well, I think the Bible talks sense about it, although it probably doesn't give us all the detail we'd like to have. But it starts off at the level of moral evil. And there is a sense in which we can understand that a little bit more easily than what we call natural evil. But the word evil is misplaced there because this isn't a moral thing. This is tsunamis, earthquakes, cancers, COVID-19. They aren't moral issues, but they cause huge damage to people. And we've got these two things, the two sources of suffering, moral evil and natural evil. Let's put it that way, because those are the terms people use. And when Jesus came to talk about them, and this is a very interesting thing, he did it almost in the same breath. He was standing on the temple mountain, and some of the crowd told him about a massacre that Pilate had committed in slaughtering Luke a number 13. of people worshiping in Luke 13. And then Jesus turned to them and mentioned not a moral evil, but a natural evil, the falling of a tower of Siloam that fell on 18 people. And he said, do you think these people were worse than anybody else? Expecting the answer, no. So that he was linking natural evil with moral evil. Now, the Bible does that at its very beginning. It talks, what we make of it is another thing, but I take it very seriously. It talks about the source of moral evil in a human rebellion against God. But it tells us quite clearly that this had an effect on the physical creation, that it produced not simply good things, but thorns and thistles. And I suspect that one of those thorns and thistles is COVID-19. Most viruses are good. In fact, we need them in order to be able to live at all. But we get these rogue things in our creation. And so the biblical story, at least, links them with the entry of sin into the world through human rebellion. So that is the diagnosis that we have to face. Now, whatever spin we put on it, we're faced with a world that is fractured, and we're faced with human beings that are fractured. And we've got to address that, and people do that in their different ways. The atheists of one way, Christians of another, and people of other traditions have another. Yeah, and I'd like to get into those different worldviews that you address in your book. But first, you observe that the coronavirus might perhaps serve as a huge loudspeaker, reminding us of the ultimate statistic that one out of every one of us dies. That actually reminds me of something C.S. Lewis wrote in uh, his famous Screwtape Letters. You know, while Wormwood, the younger demon, had celebrated the start of the war, Screwtape cautioned him, saying, Of course war is entertaining, but if we're not careful, we shall see thousands turning in this tribulation to the enemy. Consider what undesirable deaths occur in wartime. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed. How much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, and how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. There are quite a few parallels here to our present situation, aren't there? Oh, I think there are. And I'm old enough to have listened directly to C.S. Lewis many years ago. And he has helped me considerably in understanding these things. 
And I think he's dead right there. And we've been contented. We've got used to everything being fine. And then suddenly this catastrophe hits us. We thought these things were things of the past. And where he says it's God's megaphone, I think we need to take that seriously, but we need to tease it out. Because what happens is that some well-meaning people, amongst them Christians, but not only, say, but look, this is God's megaphone in that judgment on evil and sin and all that kind of thing. We need to be very careful with that. Firstly, because of what Jesus himself said in that incident in Luke 13, that catastrophes like the fall of a tower or coronavirus are not necessarily there because a certain group of people have been worse than everybody else. We have Jesus' word for it, and I accept that. So that's point number one. Secondly, I observe that where people say this is the judgment of God for X, Y, and Z, the reaction of people to that is not to say, well, I need to get to know God. It's a reaction against the person that says it. Who do you think you are taking the moral high ground and deciding that this is God's judgment? So they focus on the person and not on God. Whereas if we ask the question, look, this has happened. Our world's a very complicated place. What could this be saying to us? That can focus our minds on God because it raises the question of our vulnerability, of our mortality, and it acts as a megaphone. Perhaps we, maybe no worse than anybody else, but we've been neglecting God. And we must remember that Jesus issued a warning in Luke 13. He said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That is, he reminded them that the big issue is our relationship with God. And so if coronavirus can get us thinking about questions of God, eternity, our relationship with him, well, that for us will be a very important outcome. Yeah, we recognize that we are not our own uh, and that God himself is the one that holds the keys of life and death. Yes, this world isn't ours. He created it, and we're only temporarily here. So we ought to perhaps wake up and think that this world has an owner, and it's not us. In your book, you tell the story in which you faced your own mortality. Can you go into that a little? Well, I have been, in that sense, at the edge of death. I suddenly found that one of my major coronary arteries was completely closed, and I had to say goodbye to my wife, Sally, and rushed into the operating theater without much hope of anything. The amazing thing was that I had total peace. I knew I'd see her again, and I knew that whether I lived or died, I was in the hands of the Lord. And they operated, and 40 minutes later, the doctor said, well, I don't understand this, but you should be dead. But you're not. You can go home tomorrow. You haven't even had a heart attack. So that was that. But in my book, I also point out that that was wonderful, and I give thanks to God for it. But at virtually the same time, my sister lost her 22-year-old just-married daughter to a brain tumor, and she died. So what can I say to her? It's all very well me saying, thank the Lord for saving me, but what about her? We must not try to offer people simplistic answers because there aren't any to these questions. Yeah, the book of Job, I think, addresses that problem of giving overly simplistic answers to those profound questions. 
It does indeed. And it's very interesting that Job, the problems he was dealing with were the two kinds, moral evil. His family were attacked by raiding bands and natural evil. There was fire and wind that blew the house down. So both of those are conjoined in the book. It's almost as if the Bible wanted to give us the impression, although they're distinct conceptually, they have got something to do with each other. There's a rift in this world that's been caused ultimately by human disobedience. Did you know that you can help support the work of the White Horse Inn every time you purchase something at Amazon.com by using Amazon Smile? At no additional charge to you, Amazon will donate a small percentage of every transaction to the White Horse Inn when you link your account to Amazon Smile. Simply visit smile.amazon.com and enter White Horse Inc. That's White Horse I-N-C. Then the next time you shop at smile.amazon.com, you'll be helping to support our work here at the White Horse Inn. Again, simply head to smile.amazon.com and enter White Horse Inc. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to the White Horse Inn as I'm talking with Oxford mathematician John Lennox about his book, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? You say that whatever your faith or belief system, the coronavirus pandemic causes the big questions of life to break through to the surface and confronts us all with the problem of pain and suffering. So before we attempt to address that problem, you first note at the end of the day, there are really only three major worldview families that attempt to resolve this question. Can you walk us through the first two of those worldviews, the pantheism and the atheistic worldview, naturalism? Certainly. James Sire has written a lovely little book that millions have read called The Universe Next Door. And he points out very helpfully that although there are many worldviews, there are only three major families of them. So there's the family that believes in God, and we leave that for the moment. And then there's the, roughly speaking, the atheistic group. There is no God. The universe is just there, and that's it. And then there's the pantheistic group, where there is belief in God in some sense, but God and the universe and humanity tend to merge into one that's ultimately impersonal. So roughly speaking, most people, even if they're skeptics, fall into one of those three families. So how, how do people in a pantheistic worldview deal with suffering? Well, very often, now this is complex, of course, there, and I don't want to trivialize worldviews. And secondly, I, I really think people from these worldviews should speak from themselves. But what they've told me is that one of the central ideas is the law of karma, that people who are suffering are suffering because of misbehavior in a past life. And the corollary of that, which I find fearful to be very open with you, is that if we help those sufferers and alleviate their pain, that will simply mean that in the next life they have to suffer more. So it can lead to a passivity and a lack of even being prepared to help. Now, I'm not accusing all people that fall in the pantheist umbrella of that, but this is one of the major doctrines that is common to some of those religions. And it's a judgmental kind of thing, but it gives no hope except of an everlasting cycle from one life to the next. You also say that some Eastern philosophies see suffering as a kind of illusion. They do indeed, and that the only way to deal with it is to regard it as an illusion. 
and that doesn't actually provide a lot of help. I don't see that being a great help to people that are going through it, to be quite frank. The other worldview is, of course, atheism. And they just say, and Richard Dawkins is a major spokesman, and he puts it very well. He says, and this is a rough quotation, he says that the universe is just like what we'd expect it to be like. If at its base there's no good, no evil, no justice. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So here's a deterministic world in which there's no good and no evil. Now, I want to investigate that. Uh, the issue is whether this is true or not. Dawkins says, of course, this is a very grim view, and uh, but it's true, so we just have to accept it and live with it. Well, yes, we do if it's true. But I want to question whether it's true on a whole lot of different levels. And first of all, I don't find it livable because denying morality, there's no good, no evil, means why does one talk about the problem of evil? Because evil doesn't exist. And secondly, we discovered that we're moral beings. Where does morality come from? And here, I think I mentioned it in the book, the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, in a famous line in the Brothers Karamazov, if God does not exist, then everything's permissible. And I think that's right. You have no morality in the end, no rational basis for it, if God does not exist. In that sense, we need God in the framework to rationally understand our morality. And finally, although this could lead into a long discussion about science and God, I think atheism is illogical because if you take it to its logical conclusion, it undermines the very rationality we need to do science or to conduct any form of argument whatsoever. So I reject it. But on the practical side, I think it's quite important to see this at least, that for my atheist friends, Atheism removes an intellectual problem. This is just what the universe is like. But I also notice it removes all hope. And because it denies anything after death, anything transcendent, no God, then there is absolutely no hope. It is a hopeless worldview. And of course, if it's true, we've got to accept that. But, you know, as I watch the brave people who are fighting on the front line against the coronavirus and trace back the legacy that Christianity has given us in this world, hospitals, hospices, and all these kinds of things actually came from the Christian faith originally. Here are people offering hope, bringing hope. Is that all an illusion? No, I don't think so because I feel then on the positive side, there are major evidences that Christianity is actually true. Yeah. In your book, you respond to Dawkins by saying, if you felt like murdering children for fun, would not that, in this view, simply be dancing to your DNA? And it would be. And that's why even an atheist like J.L. Mackey of Oxford, and he was an atheist, said, if there is any absolute morality, then there's a very simple pathway from that to God. And there is. We all agree that torturing infants is wrong. So there's an absolute. And then you also point out that Richard Dawkins himself is not able to live under the implications of his own worldview, since he does describe certain things like 9-11 being evil. Oh, yes, that, that, that is right. It's not a livable philosophy. 
And it's easy to write this kind of stuff down when you're sitting at a desk, but it isn't livable. And I'm afraid since it's not only not livable and not credible, I've got to look elsewhere, and I do. Okay, so how is the problem of pain and suffering answered from within a theistic or specifically Christian worldview? How can there be coronavirus if there is a loving and all-powerful God? Well, that's the old question that we've all wrestled with, and we've never found an answer to it. In my student days, people used to argue about this. Surely a good and all-powerful God would have done this or could have done that. And the fact is, to put it bluntly, that all of us confront the same mixed picture. I call it beauty and barbed wire. I looked through my telescope the other night at Orion Nebula, absolutely spectacular, Venus shining brightly than ever before in an unpolluted sky. And then you go indoors and the television news is showing you people taking their last breath in an intensive care unit. Beauty, on the one hand, and barbed wire, bombs, and coronavirus. And we've got to accept that that's the picture. And we're not going to solve the philosophical problem. We can think about it, but we haven't solved it. And therefore, I say, can we ask another question that will move us on a bit? Granted that it's like that, and we all have to face it, whether we're atheists, pantheists, or theists. Is there any evidence anywhere that there's a God that we could trust with it? Now, trust is at a premium today. Can we trust the politicians? Can we trust the medical people? In fact, we have to trust these people. We've got no other option. And so at the bigger level, the question is, Christians who believe there is a God, is that God trustworthy? And it's here that Christianity comes to the fore specifically, and not just theism, because the heart of Christianity is God become human. And Jesus claimed to be God incarnate, and he ended on a cross. And if that is God on a cross, I put it very simply, what is that telling us? At the very least, it tells me that he has become part of human suffering and not remain distant from it. Yeah, he not only allows us to suffer, but he also is one who suffers on our behalf. He does indeed, and it's the on our behalf that's so important. You see, if the damage has been caused by the entry of sin into the world, and it happened long before you or I were born, and we can't be expected to put it right. And this is where the deep misconception exists around the world in many countries. They think that Christianity, like all religions, is a matter of self-help, keep the rule book, and God, if you're good enough, will accept you one day. That is not Christianity. That's mere religion. Christianity tells us of a God who came and suffered to take upon himself the guilt and the mess that we've made of our own lives and those of others, and to offer us forgiveness, not in some unspecified future when the judgment decides that we've done enough. None of us can do enough, but tells us this glorious message that has brought peace to millions and forgiveness, that Christ has taken the burden upon himself. So if we are prepared to trust him and lean our weight on him, he will clear us 
of the debt of guilt right away and give us two things, peace with God and eternal life. So this answers the many questions, peace for our restlessness, but life to overcome our fear of dying and death, which is very prevalent in the world today. He doesn't guarantee we won't die physically, but he does guarantee we'll never be separated from him, whether we live or we die. And it's not just an experiential peace, though we do experience it. It's an objective peace because the warfare between God and men is over. Oh, yes, that's absolutely right. And people say, oh, it's only psychological. And I say to them, look, I experience peace through trusting Christ. That doesn't prove that Christianity is true, but it's what you would expect if it were. Before I let you go, last year you wrote a book about the life of Joseph. And in that famous story from the book of Genesis, we see both natural evil, you know, the famine, as well as moral evil, you know, the fact that the brothers sold one of their own into slavery. But by the end of the story, Joseph says to his brothers, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And in the final chapter of Genesis, he tells them, as for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So how can we affirm that God intended Joseph to suffer at the hands of his brothers in the way he did, and why doesn't that end up making God the author of evil? Well, my short answer to that is please read my book on Joseph, (laughs) because that is a huge question that deserves to be teased out. The Bible claims that God doesn't tempt with evil. He's not the author of evil. But in this world, he has created us with the most valuable capacity to love or hate. That means that love is possible. But you can't have love being possible without hate being possible. And many people say to me, couldn't God have created the world without all of this awfulness? And of course he could. He could have made us all automata. But people who say that are wishing themselves out of existence. But the wonderful thing is he made provision if things went wrong, which they did. Right. And that's where the gospel comes in. And and Joseph really shows us as a thought model coming onto the bigger scale, that attitude of Christ and forgiveness. In your book, you write that Joseph encouraged his brothers not to be distressed since it was God who had providentially sent him to Egypt to preserve life in the midst of famine. And you say that in this episode, Joseph stressed God's initiative in the whole business, saying that it was not, in the end, the brothers who sent him to Egypt, but God. This double causation is important in connection with the biblical view of the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. What I find fascinating, Dr. Lennox, is that we find that same tension in Peter's sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2, you know, where he says, Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So just as we found in the story of Joseph, here in Acts 2, we see the same emphasis on both the sovereign purposes of God, as well as the responsibility of human agents in relation to the redemption provided by Jesus Christ. Yes, you do. And that raises utterly profound questions, but I'm afraid to tease that out in a way that would satisfy your listeners is not possible for me right now, but they can get the book. (laughs) That's right. Well, folks, you've been hearing from John Lennox, author of Where is God in a Coronavirus World, as well as Joseph, a story of love, hate, slavery, power, and forgiveness. Dr. Lennox, thanks for being my guest today on The White Horse Inn. 
My pleasure. Folks, be sure to join us next time as we bring you a series of classic Whitehorse Sin episodes walking through the book of Job. Thanks for being with us. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. For more information about this program, visit us online at whitehorseinn.org. If you sign up as an innkeeper, architect, or reformer, not only will you get a complimentary subscription to our magazine, Modern Reformation, but you'll also get longer editions of every White Horse Inn broadcast. To find out how to join one of these support programs, click on the support tab of our website, whitehorseinn.org. You can also give us a call at 1-800-890-7556. That's 1-800-890-7556. 7556. We'll see you next time at the White Horse Inn.